Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is September 27th of 2013, and our guest is Helen Redmond, who is adjunct adjunct faculty with NYU. Uh, She's a licensed clinical social worker, a therapist, and she's a journalist who's written for Alternate um, Al Jazeera and the socialist worker and various other venues and before we start the show i'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book our website is hamsnetwork.org we are a free of charge lay let support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether our book is called how to change your drinking a harm reduction guide to alcohol it's available from amazon for more information go to hamsnetwork.org/book our guest is with us right now how are you doing this evening helen I'm doing great, Ken. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's great to have you here. I read a bunch of your articles online, and I'm going to ask you to talk about some of them. And one of them, you were talking about uh, Corey Monteith and you know how the media covered his passing, and uh, you compared that to another person, another television person who is a little little a little different, called DeAndre McCullough. And tell us a little bit about that article. Well, I I wanted to write that article because I had read a while ago uh, The Corner, which is an amazing book by, by David Simon. And in that book, DeAndre McCullough is uh, featured quite prominently. Young black man, grew up in a family where his parents were addicted. Uh, this is taking place in, in Baltimore. And the writing is so incredibly beautiful. And it's all about people who use drugs, the, the, the business of drugs, and the police, the war on drugs. And the thing that really stood out for me was how David Simon just humanized people, and in particular DeAndre and his, his mother, and so then when Corey Monteith died of a, an overdose, and I, I have to say I'm a huge fan of Glee. I love Corey Monteith's character, Finn Hudson. So I'm hoping that article did come off as I have something against uh, Corey Monteith. Not, not at all, again, a huge fan of that show. But it really struck me how the, how the, the media looks at the deaths of rich white stars versus poor black people. Uh, DeAndre had a bit parts in the corner, uh, the television show, and uh, bit parts in in what is uh, David Simon's other show, the hit show, uh, The Wire. And it just seemed so completely different to me. So that it sort of started there, is just how the media depicted both of their overdose deaths. Well, the media depicts things really strangely all the time. Um, you know, if you've listened to my shows, I've said this a number of times. You know, uh, my worst addiction was television, so I got rid of one in like mm-hmm. 19, 1980 and haven't had one since. But I do stream things now and then on the internet. So, um, you know, the, the way me, the media represents things is often very, very um, well. It's 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 totally inaccurate because they're 
they're they're they're passing on the popular agenda. Uh, one of the things that really drove me nuts, and I'm going to get back on topic real soon. Uh, Breaking Bad is the series that I watched. You've probably seen that one. Yes. And as a drama, it is really excellent and gripping and, you know, pulls you in. You want to watch the next episode. You want to see what happens next. It's extremely well done in terms of art, in terms of representing, you know, drug use, drug users, uh, overdose, all kinds of things. It's totally inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And I was I was really bothered when I saw, you know, they, they were – showing the overdose death uh, by heroin and showing the woman choking on vomit, which I guess does happen like one time in 10,000. Uh, but normally heroin overdose, it's, it stops your respiration. You turn blue because you stop breathing. And, you know, we should, we should tell people what the real symptoms of overdose are so that they would recognize them, especially since mm-hmm. it's a huge crisis right now and people are dying of opiate overdose every day. Why would you want to misrepresent it as something that's totally different than what it is? Right, and I'm a huge fan of Breaking Bad as well. My my one major criticism, though, of that show is, first of all, it could not be a show if we didn't have a ferocious war on drugs. That's that's the first thing. And the second thing, I don't feel that Vince Gilligan and the other writers ever really addressed all of the contradictions, the racial, the class uh, divisions um, that are in the drug war, they had a, they missed, in my opinion, a huge opportunity to really uh, explore more aspects of the war on drugs than the show actually did, I think. And it was interesting, the New York Times had the entire cast and Vince Gilligan for one of their Times talks. And it was about an hour long, and it was amazing to see all the actors talking about their characters. But at no time during that entire talk did they talk about the war on drugs, did they condemn it, did they say it's racist, it's class bias. And it's really, again, for me, a huge missed opportunity to exposed the drug war for what it really was. I mean, all of those people who died in Breaking Bad, and there's a lot of them, they die hellacious deaths, right? Mm -hmm. They would not be dead if we didn't have a war on drugs, if drugs were legalized and regulated. And I just feel like they should have addressed that more in-depthly. It was a missed opportunity. Again, something The Wire did really well, which... I just want to circle back to Corey Monteith and DeAndre McCullough because in that article, the other thing I really wanted to talk about was, was again, the race and class and how the media depicts overdose deaths. So for Corey Monteith, much of the media, they the language was this is a, a tragedy and what a loss to um, society and how, why couldn't well, we save him. Lots of empathy. And absolutely correct. That's how any person who dies of an overdose death should be be uh, treated with empathy and respect. Corey Monte, uh, I mean uh, DeAndre uh, McCullough, very very different. It was the the media spun it. The the phrases that they used were kind of amazing to me in a sense that his drug addiction quote swallowed him whole. Mm-hmm. That he couldn't somehow 
beat his uh, addiction that uh, the the clock sort of ran out for him. And that's absolutely untrue. Uh, addiction takes place in the real world, right, where there are drug policies that are aimed at certain people and not at others. And DeAndre was absolutely a victim of the racist war on drugs. I mean, he had to get his score his drugs out in the streets, in alleyways where he was set up for all kinds of violence. Of course, uh, the police uh, are looking for, for people like him. His addiction wasn't treated properly. Corey Monteith had access right away to, in some, in some sense, really good uh, therapists and, and good programs. And DeAndre ended up in underfunded, uh, poorly, uh, and, and had, had you know, people who were working with him not properly trained, and uh, overwhelmed by caseloads, and was never. Uh, um, I don't. I don't. I, I didn't see in any of the press reports. Actually, he could have been offered methadone or buprenorphine, but the last program he was in uh, did not uh, offer him uh, methadone or buprenorphine. So what does he do? He tries to do abstinence. He tried to do that for his entire life. Actually, was not able to, and. He went into a program, absence based, gets out, and then relapses and robs pharmacies for opiates, a position Corey Monteith, of course, would never be in, and DeAndre should never have been in that. So those are just kind of some of the, the differences. It's our drug policies that uh, drove DeAndre to do the things that he did. It wasn't anything inherent in, in DeAndre, I guess is what I'm, I'm saying. Well, one thing I took away from the article when I read it was that DeAndre was primarily um, dealing with the criminal justice system, uh, whereas uh, Corey Monteith was primarily dealing with a treatment system, and that this was def definitely based on race and class. Exactly right. And, you know, it's not – although race is very huge, you know, it's not just race. If you're poor and you're white, you're going to be pretty screwed too. Yes. Mm -hmm. You won't have access or immediate access to uh, good treatment where it's well-funded, where the people who work there actually have training and clinical supervision. You're going to go to a public, publicly funded. Now, I don't want to say they're all, uh, they all are, are not up, up to standard, but the reality is Medicaid, people who have Medicaid, there is, uh, within, within that system, people have less access to qualified treatment uh, personnel. That's just the reality of our, our drug treatment system. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you a little bit on this, after re particularly after reading Ann Fletcher's book. And, you know, my other job, I work at Lower East Side Harm Reduction. And, you know, very often the publicly funded programs that some of the poorest of the poor go to are actually they're required to be evidence-based because they're under government contracts and you're not allowed to do anything you damn please whereas some of these luxury rehabs uh including i guess the one that cory monteith went to i saw huge criticism of it um and they're held to no standards at all so you know i think often you know the, the the programs that address the poor, poorest of the poor are actually 
of a higher standard of quality and evidence-based treatment than some of these $60,000 a month rehabs. Yeah, I, I read Anne Fletcher's book too, and I guess I would I would disagree with that. I think that there are some exceptions, but I think overall in the United States, any mental health treatment, drug treatment, healthcare, if you are poor, you get overall inferior care. The other thing about people who um, people with money, they actually have more choices. So, for example, if they they do go to uh, uh, a, a very expensive uh, treatment center like, uh, for example, Promises in, in California. If they, don't, mm-hmm. if they don't like it, they can just say, see you later. They're never mandated. Typically, they're not mandated uh, to treatment. They can just leave and, and find their own private therapist and pay out of pocket. That's not something that um, the, in, the indigent can, can do in this country. So I feel like people with money have a lot more choices. And, you know, um, that's something that has to change, right? So that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we have a continuum, so we actually have a continuum of drug treatment options for people. And I feel that if you have money, if you have education, if you have connections, you have access to a much wider array of choices. Well, this is always true. You have access to a much wider array of choices. And as far as mental health care and medical care, I would absolutely agree with you. Um, I do have to say, um, I think a lot of the drug treatment programs that are charging these outrageous sums are just based, they're, they're pure garbage. They're no better than, than a control group than doing nothing at all. They're just, the only statistically significant result they have is on people's bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, I should have done my homework for this show, but I remember reading, I think it might have been Stanton Peel's article on Corey Monteith and saying that um, his treatment program that was teaching him that he was powerless uh, just was setting him up, you know, to not, to not recover. And that's, yeah, that whole approach is something I have a huge issue with. I mean, we should be empowering people. We should tell people that you have within you the ability to overcome your difficulties what you need are mm-hmm. skills you need tools you need exercise it's just like when you start exercising in the gym you don't start lifting 200 pounds to begin with you work your way up you build up your muscles and that's you know that is the same way we need to approach drug treatment not say that you know you're powerless and you have to throw yourself on the mercy of god and ask god to cure your disease which is the standard model mhm Well, right, I hear that. <laughs> but I don't want to get too off the topic because, I mean, it is huge. It is of huge importance to realize, well, first of all, you know, we have the dichotomy which says, okay, drug use has to either be a disease that gets treatment or it has to be a crime that gets punishment and yet the vast majority of drug use should be considered neither. It's a it's a recreation. It's a choice that people make, and there's there's no reason to treat it as either a crime or a disease. This is one of my big points. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, unless people are unhappy with their drug use and what it's doing with them, if they decide I don't like this anymore, I want to change it, we should offer them every resource possible to make the change. Right. 
I, I agree with that, that the majority, we know the majority of people who use drugs, all drugs, uh, use them recreationally. It's a tiny minority, uh, but a significant minority that gets into trouble with drugs. And I would say that the, many of the harms are directly related to prohibition, that uh, when if you get in trouble with the law, why are you getting in trouble with the law if you're using drugs? And then you're set on a trajectory where you're inside the, the criminal justice system, and then you could become a mandated client, and then you might have a felony conviction. There's a whole uh, host of things that happen to you because of of prohibition. And that, unfortunately, the war on drugs mentality, the zero tolerance, the just say no, this ridiculous idea that abstinence is the gold standard has infected from the very beginning uh, drug treatment in the United States. And really what what we need to happen is a revolution in drug treatment in the United States, a complete overturning of everything that is, has come before and implement a national uh, drug treatment system that's based on the principles of harm reduction and mm. that... It, that addiction is biopsychosocial and people need access to treatment and it should be free and on demand and you can have it as much as you need it. Absolutely. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> Absolutely. And if people do not want to change their drug use, why should we coerce them? I mean, if that's, if you, right now you want to shoot heroin and that's what you like to do, you know, there there are places like Switzerland, they have heroin maintenance. If you don't do well with methadone, you can get heroin maintenance. If you want to shoot heroin in Switzerland, you can shoot heroin as long as you want until you decide, I don't want to do that anymore. And and they have a clinic system with certain criteria that you have to meet uh, in order to um, to be prescribed heroin. Uh, nobody, nobody walks in off the street and just says, "Oh, I want to start uh, injecting heroin." There's a, mm-hmm. a, a protocol and a, a clinic system that's set up to accommodate that, and it's been working really, really well for over a decade. That it had uh, heroin uh, maintenance available to the opiate dependent, and right away uh, they saw a huge drop in crime. It, um, rates of serial conversion went through the floor, hepatitis C, you name it. Uh, mm-hmm. People were able to reintegrate back into society because they were no, no longer stigmatized and criminalized for having an addiction. And that's what we need in the United States. We need more options uh, for people who are dependent on drugs, not put people in prison. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, if you give people heroin maintenance, you let them do it for a while, quite a number of them after a while say, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to change. I'm done with this. I want to do something else. You know, you know, you you try to put people in prison. You, You know, one of my favorite sayings is that every action has the equal and opposite reaction. And the more you push against it, the more pushback you get. Throwing people agreed. Yeah, throwing people in prison is not the way to get them to stop using drugs. So, well, <laughs> let's uh, move on. You wrote there was a um, 
I'm going to move on to the next article that I was reading of yours, which was about six ways that the drug war intrudes on our life. And you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's kind of um, a fun article to write in a, in a sick uh, sort of way. I think that there are still many, many millions of people in the United States who don't really believe the war on drugs affects them. It happens to other people, but it doesn't happen to them. And in that piece, I really wanted to go through some of the, the areas of life that the drug war invades uh, and causes yet uh, more harms. And one of the first ones was the, the just obsession and explosion of drug testing. To get a job, to get so many jobs now, you have to agree to be, to be drug tested. I've noticed that uh, on many online applications for jobs, right away they ask you to check a box that you agree to be drug tested. Mm. And if you don't, you cannot uh, send the job application to apply for the job. So you have to, you have to agree to give up your rights to privacy before they will even look at your application for a job. Mm -hmm. And we see that, of course, also with uh, prior arrests, how many convictions have you ever been arrested. So that is a, a massive intrusion that millions of people are drug tested uh, for jobs. We know that drug testing is not a predictor of whether a person can do an adequate job. And in fact, uh, there are other ways to uh, uh, predict if people can, can actually do the job. And then, of course, if people do have uh, drug problems when they are in the job, uh, there's ways to work with them besides drug testing them to help them um, recover from their addiction. And so that was one of the first ones, the fact that it's so ubiquitous now, drug testing, that people don't think twice about it. I think the last three jobs that I had, I had to be drug tested. And it's humiliating. It's absolutely humiliating. I don't know if you've ever been drug tested, Ken, but to you know, you're not you're not trusted. If, if, why can't they just say, "Do you use drugs?" If they even need to ask that question at all, right? Right. Well, you know, it's uh, it, it is actually kind of a well known fact that you know when people are threatened, uh, they are very likely to lie. Um, you know, Mill, uh, Bill Miller talked about this quite a bit, um, and because he was talking specifically about this myth of drug users be, or addict, people with addictions, people with chemical dependence being liars, and he found, you know, there was no evidence that chemical dependence made you into a liar. You were just as likely to tell the truth as anyone else. Uh, but the whole thing is, if you're threatened then you will lie. So if you are threatened with mm -hmm. unemployment, unless you lie about your drug use, people are going to lie about their drug use. You know, if you were if you were threatened in 1950, you know, with not being hired if you said you were gay, well, how many people went in 1950 to their employer, their prospective employer, and said, I'm gay, hire me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> not, exactly right. Not exactly the right, right thing to say in 1950. Nah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. That's... Uh, in most cases, um, it's totally irrelevant. Uh, for some jobs, it's probably even a plus. Uh, right. the the other The other invasion is uh, I was I was carted at Walgreens 
last winter when I went to buy some cold medicine. So the Combat Methamphetamine Epidemic Act of 2005, which was incorporated into the Patriot Act, uh, basically now when you go to the pharmacy and you want a cold medication that contains pseudofedrin, uh, the main chemical used to make meth, it's kept behind the counter. You have to ask for it. You have to show an ID. And the pharmacist then enters your information into a database, which then uh, the DEA has access to federal, state, local, municipal law enforcement personnel have access to it. And it's really outrageous because you're buying cold medicine. You are now a suspect and your information is put into this database. And we know because of the revelations of Edward Snowden about the National Security uh, Administration, we know that they have access to all kinds of, of information violating our, our privacy. And this is just another another aspect of it. And when it happened to me, I knew that this was uh, this was the law. And I guess I hadn't bought cold medication with pseudofedrin in it for for many years. I was I was questioning the pharmacist. I was like. I don't, I don't want to give you my identification. That should have nothing to do with, you don't have to know who I am in order for me to buy this medication. And he was like, well, I can't sell it to you by law. I have to have identification. It could be a passport, driver's license. I have to enter it into my computer. And I was just outraged, Ken. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was kind of amazed the first time I saw that. I didn't... Uh... I wasn't buying it. It was my friend who was buying it. I think, she, I think, I'm trying to remember. I think it was her son who was like five that had the cold that she was getting some cold medication for. And, you know, I had to get ID and all this for that. And it's like, what did this all come about? Mm-hmm. Right. And then one of the other ones that I, I, I talked about in the article, I'm not sure, again, if a lot of people know this, but that is uh, that all physicians, nurse practitioners, dentists, and even veterinarians, if you can believe that, they have to have a DEA registration number. And the DEA uh, registration number, uh, you have to have that if you want to prescribe narcotics. And the DEA tracks all the prescriptions that are written for controlled substances, mostly narcotics. And what this has what this has set up is the DEA is a policing agency for health health providers, for health practitioners, and it's had a chilling effect on prescribing practices. One of the most, uh, again, outrageous uh, side effects of, of having every prescription that you write for a controlled substance tracked, monitored by the DEA is the crisis uh, that those who have chronic pain are in. Patients who have chronic pain have a very difficult time getting physicians to prescribe adequate doses of opiates because many of these physicians and nurse practitioners, they're very straightforward. They say, I don't want to be uh, monitored by the DEA. I don't want to be confronted by the DEA. I don't want to lose my license. I don't want to have my files combed over. I don't want to lose my DEA license. And when you kind of step back and look at this, why in the hell is the DEA monitoring physicians and other healthcare providers? If we as a society believe that our health 
pra practitioners are not prescribing controlled substances adequately, then why don't we have other people involved in the healthcare system monitor their prescribing practices? The DEA, they are not physicians, they're not pharmacists, they're not PharmDs, they're not nurses, nurse practitioners. Again, it's it's incredible when you when you think about it and patients are the one ones who suffer, in particular people with chronic pain syndromes who can't can't get access to the medications that essentially allow them to function day to day. They're not getting high, they're not abusing their medications, they're trying to live their lives. And if you read some of these stories, I have one included in the article, they're absolutely heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking and unnecessary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a bizarre situation because, you know, every time Big Pharma comes out with a new product, they want to tell you how wonderful it is. And, you know, they got these uh, these uh, opioid pain prescriptions like uh, OxyContin, the ones that they were, you know, they had under patent. And they said, you know, these you can, you can take all these you want. And they're not addictive. And they were pushing them on everyone. So there was a huge problem with overprescription. And now it's like, well... We know that they're just the same as any other, as natural opiates, if not worse. Um, and now they're trying to cut them all back. And the first thing people are doing that they can't, you know, people who are addicted to them, if they can't get them, then they're going for heroin. So we had overprescription on the one hand. On the other hand, we have pain patients that can't get their medications. We have people with a history of opiate addiction who maybe are dying in, in a horrible pain. You want to die in three days, and they say, "Well, we can't give him morphine because he's an addict." Mm -hmm. you know, it makes no sense. It's it, on either side. That's exactly right. Overmedicated and undermedicated. As long as it's under patent, then you can then big pharma can roll in tons of money. Oh, this is really good for you. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to minimize. I don't want to minimize the impact of opiates uh, on 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 people. We know now that the the amount of people who are overdosing on opiates has gone up uh, dr dramatically, and, and we have to address that. That that opiates, uh, in particular, in combination with other drugs, alcohol, benzodiazepines, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can be very very deadly. That's absolutely the case. It's also the case that there are many prescription drugs, in particular uh, psychotropic medications, that have enormously dangerous side effects, but these medications are not under the scrutiny of the DEA, and they are prescribed quite freely by uh, physicians and other healthcare practitioners. So there's a double standard going on here, and again, it's, it's the war on drugs, and it, there's a war on on opiates uh, in, in particular, there's a long history of this, and again, not to minimize the dangers of opiates because they're real, but it's also the case for many other uh, medications. For example, uh, medications that uh, people take uh, to thin their blood. Um, warfarin is is an example. Mm -hmm. the, the the therapeutic margin for these drugs, if you if you if you take too much or if you don't have your blood checked regularly, if you're not tightly monitored on this particular uh, med medication, you can die very, very easily. So you can even get to uh, an emergency room for treatment. 
So that that uh, I think ha- has to be said that it's not only opiates that can can harm people. There's whole other classes of medications that are not under the microscope of uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Mm. Oh, that's absolutely true. Um, when I wrote my book, there's a long appendix in the back about alcohol and drug interactions, and you know I learned an awful lot by putting that thing together. But yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of really dangerous stuff out there, and particularly if you mix it with alcohol or with something else. I mean, if you mix the wrong two prescriptions together, you're in big trouble. Um, exactly. One thing going back to uh, opiates, um, what we I think what we need is a really huge push to educate people, um, and particularly young people, about how to use opiates so that you don't kill yourself. You know, don't mix them with alcohol. Don't mix them with uh, with uh, Valium or one of these other benzodiazepines. You know, if you're going to use them, you got to know how to use them so you don't kill yourself. But if you went into the high school and wanted to teach the kids about how not to kill yourself with an overdose, I, I think you'd have a hard time getting that through the school system. Mm-hmm. Right. Um I think what you're talking about is the idea of just saying no, and I mean K-N-O-W. That as we teach young people, or we're trying to teach young people about the harms of and the pleasures of alcohol, um, we need to do the same thing with other other drugs. We know that young people are going to experiment. Drugs are here to stay, and uh, the best thing you can do is educate young people honestly about what's going on, and they can make good decisions. I've I've always felt, in in terms of the education around drugs and alcohol, we don't give young people enough credit. I mean, they're really smart. I mean, I I think there are a a lot, a lot of young people who, when they realize the, the, the dangers of mixing drugs or not knowing what's in them, they choose not to do it. Or they choose to do it in circumstances where they're more safe, i.e. reducing the harm. And our current drug education, the Just Say No, N-O, it doesn't recognize that young people are smart and savvy. I mean, they use the Internet, they Google everything, they find out, uh, they're dance safe, which test drugs. And I think we have to have more faith in our our young people, our teenagers, that they can – actually make good choices around uh, around drugs and alcohol. Yeah. You know, even for alcohol, which is our legal drug, um, we have some ridiculous policies. You know, if, if you hold a party in your home for t- uh, teenagers to drink so that they don't go out drinking and driving all over the place, uh, you can be arrested for that. Right. Uh, I've I read a number of stories uh, where precisely that, that happened. And, you know, you're not even supposed to have, you're not even supposed to teach your own children to drink moderately at the dinner table until they're over the age of 21, which is not the time to do it. As we know from the, the countries that have the least um, alcohol dependence rates, the low ones are the countries where, you know, the children, they get they get a sip of wine with their dinner you know, from the time they're like 10 years old or something. And, but, you know, it's very uh, – being drunk is is really looked down upon. So public drunkenness is not acceptable. But uh, a little wine with the meal is the norm. Right. Well, alcohol is integrated into uh, the, the culture, into to eating. And uh, I, I think that uh, – 
yeah, other other countries do it a lot better than than we do. And the other problem with uh, alcohol, a legal drug, is that you have to be 21 to drink. And of course, millions of young people go off to college, leave their homes for the first time, and they're on college campuses, and they're not allowed to drink legally. And that sets up a huge culture of, of secrecy, of the criminalization of of young people who are just starting out in their lives. It drives it underground. Again, it criminalizes it. And I believe we need to change the drinking age back to 18 so that we don't criminalize yet more young people just starting out in their lives and embark on, uh, you know, Alan Marlott. Alan Marlott has, you know, that great publication mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. teaching college uh, students how to drink responsibly, how to count drinks, blood alcohol um, levels that... Uh, a little bit of alcohol actually goes a long way. It's it's a myth that the more you drink, the better you feel. In fact, it's it's really the opposite. Uh, alcohol is a central nervous system uh, depressant. Although some people uh, do like that feeling of just being really, really out of it. But this idea that the more you drink, the higher you get, that's not not true. And and we have lots of ways of working with that particular group of young people. Uh, to help them learn how to drink responsibly, and we don't do that. And instead, we uh, arrest a lot of, of college-age students at, at parties, and they drink and drive instead of being able to, you know, stay on campus and have a party. It sets up all kinds of, of tragedies that could be avoided if we knocked the, the legal drinking age back down to 18 and really launched a harm reduction-based model of educating young people. And again, respecting the intelligence of people who are in college that they can make good choices. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the whole problem with the the earlier laws was the fact that it was considered states' rights, and some states had had the age of 18, some states had the age of 21, now, I lived in Wisconsin, where it was 18, and our neighbor, Minnesota, had the age of 21 as the drinking limit, and every weekend, everybody was piling into their car in Minnesota, driving to Wisconsin, getting hammered out of their minds, and driving back. Uh, it's not something that should be uh, determined by the state. That's why the you know the, the federal government bumped it up to 21, but that was the wrong way to go. They should have bumped it down to 18 everywhere, but that was unthinkable at the time for for our government leaders, apparently. Right. Uh, hysteria was actually created around drunken driving. Again, it's it's a it's a it's a problem. It has to be um, taken seriously in our society. Uh, but the way that we're going about it, I don't believe, is uh, is productive because it means criminalizing millions and, and millions of people. And there's ways to cut down on drunk, drunk driving. That we don't do. For example, uh, why can't bars uh, hire taxis to take people who are home drunk? Okay, here's, take them home. here's my question for you: Why do bars have parking lots? So you can drive there and drive <laughs> home. <laughs> that makes no sense. A bar should not have a parking lot. Period. No. Um, we need. Um, well, I've talked about this before. I mean, I think the penalties for drunk driving in the U.S. are quite reasonable. I would not want to make them less 
because I think it's extremely dangerous. I would like to see the uh, laws for yakking out of your te- on your cell phone while you're driving uh, be as extreme as the drunk driving laws. I think any time you're in a vehicle, you shouldn't. I mean, that's ridiculous. That that's you're in a killer machine. You should be held mm-hmm. to very strict uh, standards when you are driving. Um, so I, I, don't... I, I, I well, I agree. I want to get at what are the reasons that people drive drunk? Why are people drinking and driving? Yes. And how do we how do we reduce the harm of that? So designated driving that campaign was brilliant. The other mm-hmm. thing is in cities. Mass transportation should be available 24-7. That would go a long way to people mm-hmm. not driving. If you could get on a bus or a train and, and go out and, and party until whatever and, and have mass transportation take, that, that would be a simple way to do it. And then just taxis, uh, low-cost taxis, private cars, uh, bars, uh, providing rides home for people. That, that, so there's ways around this. I, I agree. When people kill other people when they're driving drunk, society has the right to sanction those people. Absolutely. But again, let's get to, to the roots and solve the roots of why people are driving drunk to begin with. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I did uh, the numbers one time to uh, compare uh, Japan with the U.S., where I lived for quite a while, and people just don't drive drunk there. You see them passed out drunk on the train a lot, but... No, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's 20 times fewer uh, drunk driving uh, drunk driving deaths in Japan than the U.S. That's that's 20 times fewer. That's because everybody's on the train when they're drunk. But, uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you got in your car and drove, uh, you would be ostracized by everyone around you. You can't do that. There, you know, people would not want to talk to you again. That's just not acceptable behavior. So the number mm-hmm. of people that do that are extremely small. They're the people, you know, the sociopathic types that say, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. And that's a very small number of people because, first, it's just not done. Second, you know, public transportation is available everywhere. It's only one-third of people even drive to work. Two-thirds go on public transportation. So mm-hmm. absolutely, build a, build a public transportation. Make it accessible. Uh, there are other projects uh, in other places in the world. There's one called Project Red Nose, um, which uh, I think it's in Canada. It's, I know it's in Switzerland, too, where, you know, they – they give free rides to people who are too drunk to get home. Mm-hmm. It's just common sense, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> well, in places, I, I wanted to make sure we had time to talk about Afghanistan because one of the things that was so interesting is Afghanistan is a country where alcohol is banned. There's alcohol prohibition. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to have any situations where people are driving drunk in Afghanistan and other countries that uh, pro- prohibit alcohol. Yeah, prohibit alcohol successfully, you might say, which the, the Muslim countries have done that pretty successfully. We were not very successful in the U.S. with it. Right, and I'm not I'm not an, an advocate of, of prohibition of, of any drug, but... Of course, in Afghanistan, what they have plenty of is heroin and, and opium. And according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, 
Afghanistan now has uh, nearly a million uh, users, uh, regular or problem drug users, and they're smoking opium and they're injecting heroin. And some of the people that I met when I was in Kabul, they, they've tested the drugs and they're saying it's about 80% pure, which is really astounding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, continue. Oh, go ahead. No, no, continue. Well, um, they Afghanistan has many of the same problems that the United States has. Uh, they have a war on drugs, and it's a, a policy, of course, that's been exported uh, from the United States, all drug use is illegal in Afghanistan. But of course, as I as I said, uh, these uh, statistics show that uh, people don't are paying attention to these laws uh, prohibiting the use of of, of opium and uh, and heroin. They also have a large uh, group of people, millions, who smoke marijuana and and hashish. So this is a country that is just suffused um, from one end to the other um, with drugs, and they have a war on on drugs there. And when I when I was there, I went with uh, outreach workers at the only methadone clinic in the entire country. That is in Kabul. They have a methadone clinic that serves 77 clients in a country that again is awash in, in opiates because. Afghanistan grows 90% of the world's poppy, which is then uh, manufactured into heroin and smokable opium, which then goes into uh, uh, Europe and also into um, South Asia, into um, Central Asia, uh, Russia, uh, all the the countries that border it, and then then beyond. And it's really it's a remarkable situation uh, when, when you think about it that. They're growing all of, of of these drugs, and they're not stopping drug trafficking. Uh, it's getting out, right? It's getting to all these different countries, to the people who want to use it. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the country using it. And it's so clear that this uh, drug policy of, of the absolute prohibition has failed. And... To see the, the human suffering, to see the misery. So I went with the outreach workers to open air drug scenes. And in Kabul, one of the main ones is under, uh, the, the Puli Sokta Bridge. And there's just hundreds of men, uh, openly smoking opium and I- injecting drugs. And you see right there, just in your face, the, the destruction uh, of prohibition that, that these people these human beings are using these drugs. They're criminalized. They, the police uh, break up these open-air drug scenes. They beat them up. They've killed drug users. And it's really uh, a, a desperate situation in Afghanistan for, for drug users. Okay. Um, I'm just curious. Um, you, th- you think uh, that the alcohol prohibition is actually successful at stopping the alcohol use, but the the opiate use is not being stopped at all. Do, do you have any rationale why that would be, uh, aside from the fact that they, that everyone is growing poppies? 
Well, I think I, I should have probably said this before. Culturally, uh, at least Afghanistan, I know, uh, they they never had a, a culture, a very strong culture of drinking alcohol. Now, certainly mm-hmm. some of the uh, uh, imperialist imperialist powers that have dominated Afghanistan over the last century have brought alcohol with them, the British, the Americans. But in terms of uh, Afghans themselves, it's never really been a part of their culture. For example, like it is in Europe where there's a strong vina culture, I mean, they've grown grapes, there's a culture of wine um, that is really indigenous uh, to mm-hmm. those societies. Not true in Afghanistan. I think that explains it. And then, uh, uh, actually, poppy, grow, uh, the, the amount of it that is grown now, uh, that, there's lots of reasons for that, but uh, Afghanistan wasn't always the number one exporter of heroin. Uh, to uh, the regions around it. There's lots of reasons for that, uh, which I don't have time to get into. But um, now that they are, it makes sense that that is the drug of choice. But the drug of choice that's always been in Afghanistan is is cannabis. Uh, cannabis mm-hmm. indica is grown widely, and they've had a long and pretty incredible culture of, of growing this. I mean, people, farmers pride themselves on their growing of cannabis and, and the hash that they produce. It's world-renowned, actually, uh, the, the farmers who grow cannabis. They take a lot of pride in, in what they grow and how they grow it and the manufacturing of it. It's a very elaborate uh, a process. So those are the drugs that have been the ones that have been predominantly used in, in that country. And I think probably the same thing could be said for India and, and, and Pakistan, that And actually, cannabis is the number one drug used around the world. Like, that is the drug that the majority of people use. It's not heroin. It's not cocaine. It's not methamphetamine. In fact, it's cannabis. Mm -hmm. You know, that's interesting. Um, I think in large parts of the Islamic world where alcohol was prohibited, cannabis was very popular. And that's probably why they were pretty successful with the alcohol prohibition because people were more interested in smoking dope than they were in getting drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and that's interesting. Although one country, there, there's one country where cannabis is not popular compared to methamphetamine, and that's in Japan because, you know, when I was there, I had people that wanted to sell me methamphetamine. I said, you know, can you get me a marijuana? Oh, no, you, you go to prison forever for that. It's like... <laughs> they, they, yeah, it's... Yeah, no, it's like, so it's so interesting because each country has their own preferences uh, for drugs, and in in that in in South Asia and Iran also has a long culture of opium smoking. I mean, at one point they had something like 500 opium dens in 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 the capital, uh, and their and opium dens functioned just like. Uh, bars. I mean, people would go in and they would choose what they wanted and they would smoke and they would relax and hang out and um, there was really no violence and it was really no no different than, than bars or I would even say Starbucks where people go to get a blast of, of, of espresso who really are addicted to caffeine. It's really no different. We know the effects of opium are ones of calming, they're very comforting, 
Um, you don't feel anxious. You feel warm. Uh, you're not interested in <laughs> hurting anybody. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it can be a really wonderful experience for those people who, who choose to, to smoke opium. Mm-hmm. Now, since we mentioned methamphetamine, um, this is going to get me back to Breaking Bad. And one of the things that, that bothered me on the show is that they, they never mentioned that methamphetamine is, is available for prescription in the United States for children age six and up. You know, for ADHD, it's sold under the brand name of Desoxin. You know, when I was researching my book, I was just I I didn't know that before. I was writing the part about drug and alcohol interactions, and I hit this thing: Desoxin. Oh, brand name for methamphetamine, available for prescription for children age six and up. Oh, here's the horrible scourge drug that's turning everybody into monsters, um, Breaking Bad, um, and oh, oh, psychiatrists can give it to six-year-olds. What the hell is that all about? Right. And and it, it was just another opportunity for the writers of Breaking Bad to exploit the contradictions that are so ubiquitous when we talk about drugs that in one in one way of life it's legal, in another way it's punished in draconian ways, right? Like people who use meth, who have possession of meth who manufacture meth, they are, are chucked into cages for 10, 15, 20 years, and yet we use uh, this, this drug to help people with attention deficit disorder. Like, I was so wishing there'd be a storyline in there, for example, that Walter Jr. has ADHD and has to go on to Adderall or whatever uh, medication <laughs> to exploit that, that – um, that contradiction, they did it with uh, with Hank, uh, the DEA agent. Well, I don't remember the episode where he's got a Cuban cigar, and it's illegal to have Cuban cigars. Mm-hmm. And Walter and Hank talk about how that is just that just doesn't make sense. And if you talk about you know nicotine and and that's a legal drug, and yet it can be enormously uh, destructive uh, to human health, and so. The other thing about Breaking Bad that I didn't like, despite being totally blown away by the show over and over, is that they, to my to my recollection, I haven't seen the last season yet, I don't think that they ever depicted people using meth uh, and enjoying it and just recreationally and having a great time like we know millions of people do. They're not drug lords. They're not like Jesse. For example, Jesse is always shown using in, in a very manic, very destructive way, bad things always happen when Jesse uses meth. The reality is very different. And this is something that I love that Stanton Peel says in his books. You know, we never see, with few exceptions, I think weeds is an exception, because on weeds they show people smoking marijuana and having a great time. They're, it's paired with having a glass of wine, a nice meal. Nobody's hurting any. They're just enjoying marijuana. On Breaking Bad... Everybody who uses it is violent, horrible, worthy of death. They can't control it. They have to use it for four days in a row. And that's just not the reality. Millions of people actually use meth just like I might have a glass of wine, a cocktail, smoke a joint. And that was my sense of the depiction of meth. It was always destructive and bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, interesting on that point, I don't know if you've seen Carl Hart's new book, 
um, he's a neuroscientist at uh, Columbia University. Uh, he wrote a book called High Price, and he's on Bill Maher. May, I can't say his name because I don't watch TV, <laughs> but he's he's, uh, he's on that show tonight. Maybe he's, maybe we're running opposite him, recording opposite him. Um, talk, but his research is about it was on crack smoking. And, you know, he found that only about 10% of crack smokers are addicted. And it was a, he was actually studying the people who have dependence and how much control they have. He was doing a classic experiment that was done with alcohol a long time ago with people with alcohol dependence of, you know, you give them a choice. Uh, you know, first you give them a drink. Then you give them a choice. You can have another drink or you can have $5 that you get next week. And... Mm-hmm. Most people took the five dollars they can get next week instead of the one drink right now, even though they'd already had one. You know, people are in control of their behaviors, even when they have substance dependence. They can make choices. They can decide, hey, five dollars, uh, five dollars next week is worth more than a dollar's worth of alcohol right now. And that's the same thing he found with the with the crack smokers that he was uh, experimenting with in his lab in Columbia University just uh, recently. Same things. No, they were not out of control. They were not unable to make choices. They made choices. And most of them chose, yeah, let's get the long-term reward. It's the bigger reward. Right. That book looks really, really great. I'm so glad it was written because there is the notion in this country that there are some drugs that are more addictive than others. And I, I think, and there's this division between hard and soft drugs, and I remember something uh, one of my colleagues uh, in, in Portugal said. Uh, he was saying we really have to stop talking about hard and soft drugs. What might be hard for you might be soft for me. Marijuana, I might feel like, wow, I'm feeling, hmm, I want to use this a lot. Heroin, I might not feel that way. So we have to stop making those distinctions, I think, between drugs because it's much more complicated than that. There's another really great book that I want to mention. Hopefully your listeners will, will pick it up because in this book he talks about, uh, he talks about, um, drugs a lot. Um, it's a book called Gang Leader for a Day. Uh, Sudhir Venkatesh wrote it. He's a, a sociologist at, uh, Columbia. And in this book, he, it's basically an, an ethnography. He goes into a housing project in Chicago and basically hangs out with, with drug dealers, people who use drugs, and he's part of a lot of drug scenes. And meth was was really really big when uh, Sudhir was was in, was uh, in these housing projects in Chicago. And so he started to, to look at how people use drugs, under what circumstances and really kind of excavated the reasons and the circumstances under which people use drugs. And he he estimated that people used uh, crack cocaine. So he saw people using crack, using meth, using all kinds of drugs. But he estimated that 25% of the people in this housing project that he studied used crack recreationally. Mm-hmm. They had jobs. They paid their bills. They used crack again like we would use marijuana or the legal drug alcohol. It was recreational. It was the weekend. They had a party. They had a great time. They didn't hurt anybody. Nobody hurt them. And so, kind of again, it gives a lie to the idea that drugs like crack 
which we were told right from the beginning was if you even just used it once, you were going to be instantly addicted. And then they said that about meth, correct? That mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you use meth even once, you're going to be hopelessly addicted and lose all your teeth and, and start selling your body on the street. And in Gang Leader for a Day, he really shows that people – 25% were able to just use this like they use other other drugs. And I think it's those examples are, are important. And Carl Hart's book is really, really important in breaking down those lies and myths that the drug warriors promote every single day in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and it is important to realize that there are differences um, both in the addictiveness of certain drugs and not just the drug itself, but how it is delivered because the more quickly the concentration changes in your brain, the you know the more addictive it is. Um, eating opium is less addictive than smoking it because it gets to your brain much more quickly. The the concentration rises much more quickly. It's like chewing tobacco is not as addictive as smoking cigarettes, and that's the one that I wanted to get to with smoking cigarettes because cigarettes are hands down the single most addictive drug and drug delivery mechanism in existence you know they're they're worse than heroin crack any methamphetamine any of these most addictive hardest to quit and on top of that they call they wreak the most havoc there's more people dead of of cigarette smoking than any than all other drugs combined so mm-hmm. we we really should be aware that you know some things are very addictive you know, I was a very heavily addicted cigarette smoker for, oh, many, many years. I think about 35 years, you know, and I was really hooked. And then, yeah, I decided to quit. And I said, you know, okay, if you quit, you can have up to one cigar a week because you don't have to inhale those. So that can be your, that's your reward for quitting cigarettes. And so, so far this, so far this year of 2013, I've had one cigar. I hope to have another one before the winter sets on, but I don't have I don't have time to sit down and smoke those leisurely like I would like to. But are, are they Cuban cigars, Ken? Um, I don't have connections with the DEA, so I can't get Cuban cigars from the DEA or the FBI that they've seized or whatever government agency seized them. I get right. actually I get one called La Gloria Cubana, which tries to pretend it's Cuban, but it's uh, I think it's. I'm not sure if it's the Dominican Republic or somewhere down there. It's pretty tasty, but I like it. <laughs> right, and I'm glad you brought up uh, cigarettes and, and nicotine because uh, the, the whole history, it, it's really the what what one book is called is the, the cigarette century. And one of the reasons so many people became addicted to cigarettes is because of the tobacco industry, the the corporations like R.J. Reynolds and Lorillard, um, where they, through PR, through marketing, were able to uh, convince millions of people to smoke, pairing uh, cigarette smoking with being desirable, pairing uh, smoking with being patriotic, uh, making all kinds of claims over the decades of what smoking, I mean, the whole culture around uh, smoking uh, was created. And then with the collusion of the um, the, the Congress over, again, decades, uh, of not uh, being able to regulate effectively uh, nic- nicotine uh, t- tobacco, um, that, that whole um, era 
when you look back on the, uh, the, the amount of people who have died is just uh, staggering. The World Health Organization estimates something like um, oh, some millions and millions of people die uh, from the effects of tobacco. It's far outstrips uh, the deaths of, of any other drugs. And it's actually not nicotine that is the culprit here. It's actually mm-hmm. tobacco and the ignition of, of tobacco. Because now, uh, and this is something else that I, I write about and uh, I, I've been thinking about a lot lately, uh, we now have a, a way around uh, people dying uh, for their want of, of nicotine. Nicotine is a very powerful drug. It's a very good drug. What it does is it has pretty amazing anti-anxiety and anti-depressant effects. That's what people are actually after when they smoke cigarettes, those effects of calming down, relaxing, easing of depression, as well as nicotine helps people focus. It helps them concentrate. And we know this because we have lots of studies about the impact of nicotine on the human brain. And one of the areas that I'm interested in particular is because I work with people with co-occurring health problems, addiction, and mental illness. Mm -hmm. There's staggeringly high rates of smoking among people with mental illness, schizophrenics in particular, something like 95% -hmm. of people diagnosed with. And what they're after is nicotine because... The other thing that nicotine does for people with mental illness who take psychotropic medications, it dials down some of the worst symptoms of, of their, uh, their, their disease, the, the voices, um, delusions. Nicotine actually can help quiet um, those, uh, those, those effects of, of, of being mental, mentally ill. And so that's why we see so many people struggling with mental illness uh, smoking, correspondingly very high death rates from uh, smoking because people with mental illness tend to smoke a lot, right? Mm-hmm. They're not uh, a couple cigarettes a day. We're talking two, three packs. Now we have electronic cigarettes, which are essentially nicotine delivery device devices. There's no tobacco. There's no combustion. It's a cartridge with nicotine in it. It is, um, there is, it's, there's no, no combustion. It's electronic. And you can have your nicotine, you can get your nicotine fix without all of the carcinogens that cause cancer. So this is a revolutionary new uh, nicotine delivery device that we have to get into the hands of people. It's a harm reduction. Uh, it's a harm reduction device when you think about it. It reduces the harm. And for those people who choose to continue to use nicotine, they can reduce their harms and still get the benefits uh, from, from nicotine. So this is a huge breakthrough, I think, uh, for people with addictions, with an addiction to nicotine. Now, you see, I had this whole plan going. I just don't know how to, how to fund it. And, how, you know, to get a nonprofit that gives schizophrenics electronic cigarettes so that they don't kill themselves smoking regular cigarettes. I mean, I think that's something we need to do is give schizophrenics electronic cigarettes because mm-hmm. they, they need the nicotine. And certainly locking, up the, locking them up in the psych ward and taking away the cigarettes is probably the worst thing in the world you can do for them. Absolutely. And that's what, up, in, up until maybe a couple of years ago, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. They, they recognize the rights of 
mentally ill to, to smoke, they also realize that uh, people people would, uh, for lack of a better way, you know, behave better. It's like if you, I mean, if you gave them their drug, I mean, you could give them other medications to help them relax. But nicotine works in ways that other uh, medications don't. It doesn't have nearly the, the the nasty side effect profile of other medications, right? Uh, it works really fast, which is one of the reasons people like it as a drug delivery device. Inhaling something is the quickest way to mm-hmm. feel the effects of a drug, so that's great. And uh, it's a really it's it's an ethical it's it's a moral it's a moral question. I understand both sides of it. On the one hand. Uh, people have a right to smoke. People have a right to um, take things into their body that that might hurt them, absent harm to others. And that's where smoking is different, right? Because of the secondhand smoke. With the e-cigarette, that issue is, is eliminated, as well as all the other ones. But for a really long time, they didn't have much to help manage people with severe, chronic, persistent mental illness when they were institutionalized, cigarettes was really the only way. And so you were damned if you do because then they're at greater risk for these cancers. But then if you don't, they're absolutely miserable. So mm-hmm. I, I, I can only imagine the ethical dilemma that so many uh, providers found themselves in. I don't, I don't know what the right answer is. Well, I think I think – in the in that time, it was difficult to know the right answer. Right now, I think the right answer is obvious. Give them electronic cigarettes. That's, right. That's like a no. It's like a no brainer. But who would fund mm-hmm. that project to give schizophrenics electronic cigarettes so they don't kill themselves? Right, and the con- there's still a lot of controversy around electronic cigarettes. And some of the things that that I've heard is. Well, it's again, it's just all or nothing black black or white thinking. You've got to quit. You have to stop. You have to stop smoking. Well, no, you don't. Because now we have a way to maintain this addiction and you're reducing significantly the harms to yourselves and others. The other one is the uh, the vapor that is emitted. So we have a, a recent study that shows that the vapor is not emitting anything harmful to people who might be around you. But that's one of the other uh, criticisms of the uh, the electronic cigarettes. So it's the vapor and you've got to quit. And, you know, what I have to say to that is I, I think it's a bit analogous to methadone, that there is this stigma about methadone. Well, okay, you can go on it, but you've got to get off it as fast as you can. <laughs> Taper down right away. And and this is sort of being applied to nicotine. It's like, okay, we can only use the e-cigarette uh, as a way to help people to quit. And I don't agree with that. For people who want to use it as a method to quit, absolutely go for it. But there will be some people, for whatever reason, that will need to be maintained on nicotine for conceivably years, if not forever. And now that we have a safe way to do that, um, we shouldn't be judging people just as we shouldn't for those who stay on methadone for many, many years. Well, the other thing that kills me is the people that have written articles against the electronic cigarette are totally in favor of nicotine gum and nicotine patches. Why? Because they're manufactured by Big Pharma, who's keeping you addicted to nicotine. But it's just because... Um, 
the gum is much less successful because it's not as good a delivery mechanism as the e-cigarettes. So it's just less successful at helping people to get off real cigarettes. But should I mean, why isn't anybody saying big pharmacy is addicting people? They're keeping people addicted to nicotine with nicotine gum, and it's horrible, and they're terrible. <laughs> and I haven't seen anyone condemning them for that. Right. Big Pharma always gets a pass. And, and the problem with those uh, that nicotine replacement therapy, the gums, the nasal uh, spray, the, the patches, is that they don't replicate, they cannot replicate the ritual of smoking, which is enormously powerful for people. And I, I learned this mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. my mother, who was a three-packer a day and died of lung cancer. And I also learned it from several of my my drug-using clients who, again, I think among people who use uh, illicit substances, there's also high rates of smoking. And and I've never been a cigarette smoker. And I, I, you know, I I asked lots of people, what what is it? Because I don't don't quite get it. And the ritual is, is, is part of it. And it's just like any other drug. So, you know, the dragging of the cigarette, the inhalation, the exhalation, the, the hit against the throat is very important. Mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. actually like the smell of smoke. Now, I don't, but people actually like that. And what the e-cigarette does, it doesn't do it exactly, but in many, many ways it replicates that ritual of smoking, touching, having something in your mouth, the oral part of it. Uh, you don't light it, of course, the same way, but many of the e-cigarettes, uh, when you drag, when you drag in a light, uh, lights up at the end, it can be blue or red. And, and that's, that's a really great thing that we can do that now, that we can maintain that ritual for people. Just like I want to make the analogy uh, around, uh, alcohol. You know, you, you take the cork out of the bottle, you smell the cork, right? Mm-hmm. You pour it in the the wine into the glass. You swirl it around to release the bouquet, and then you taste it and you smell it and you look at it. And it's very much the same for smoking. And again, it's it's a revolutionary breakthrough in drug delivery devices that we now have the electronic cigarette. People don't have to die now. Can they can get their nicotine and not die? And that. And and we should be it should be promoted. Absolutely, I've been promoting it for years. Uh, it wasn't very popular when I wrote my articles about electronic cigarettes as harm reduction device. They were still brand new then. Um, you know, a lot, since then a lot of people jumped on the bag, bandwagon. But I was out there, you know, three four years ago saying, "Well, duh, this is obvious." Mm-hmm. Right, and they've gotten better. Uh, they, they, there's more quality control. I mean, initially it was, it, it did feel like the Wild West and you, you couldn't be sure if, if the nicotine cartridges actually had as much nicotine as they, they said they did. Um, you know, leakage of, of, of um, the, the nicotine, what they called juice, it would come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there were all kinds of quality control, uh, problems which, Many of them have been solved uh, at this point. Uh, different brands, for example, produce more vapor than others. Uh, some of the batteries last longer now, which is really important so that um, you can actually go for, for quite a while, sort of like cell phone batteries. You want you want a long charge. And it's an evolving industry. And we'll see what happens because the FDA is going to get involved. They're, they're looking at the product. 
Uh, we don't know yet what they're going to do. Um, one of the things I'm concerned about is uh, the taxation uh, of it. I don't want e-cigarettes to be taxed in the way that tobacco is because then it will be put out of the reach of the people who need it the most, and that is the poor. We know uh, at this point who smokes the most, at least in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a majority of people who are poor, at least educated, high percentage of uh uh, American Indians, a high um, disproportionate amount of African American smoke, and so this is the demographic that will not be able to afford to buy electronic cigarettes if they're taxed the way that that cigarettes are. So I'm not in favor of that. I'm also concerned because a number of um, states are attempting to pass laws essentially banning e-cigarettes everywhere. As if they were tobacco. They're not. <laughs> well, we shouldn't ban any of this shit. If you want to smoke cigarettes, smoke cigarettes. I mean, you should be aware of what you're doing. Um, and, that you know, this is like most addictive drug, and it's uh, the most deadly drug in the world. Uh, but if that's what you want to do, if you want to smoke those uh, unfiltered camels, uh, which I smoked for a long time, and then I switched over to Bugler and rolled my own, which was, you know, even you know, even stronger. So, but if that's what you want to do, that's your right. Absolute harm to others. Well, you know, th- this is true too. But you know, people talk about secondhand smoke, but they never talk about the fact that I don't drive, but I have to inhale other people's automobile exhaust all the time. And I always said I'd rather spend a night in a room with a smoker than a night in than a night in a room with a car that's running. It's uh, engine all night long because I know I'm going to wake up dead that way. <laughs> and, and I think we can effectively address both of those issues so that uh, people can smoke and not harm other people, which I don't believe smokers want to do. I don't think pe- people who smoke want their secondhand smoke to hurt other people. That's why people go outside. Uh, uh, I think it's important that people, uh, I'm in favor of laws that have banned smoking in bars and restaurants. I don't think people who work in these establishments, I mean, they're occupational uh, hazards, and I think that there should be places where smokers can go to smoke cigarettes, where their, their secondhand smoke is not reaching those who choose not to smoke. I don't know. I'm, st- I'm still not sure about the one with bars. You know, I think... I think there was a problem that bar owners were too stupid to realize, you know, if you had uh, banned smoking in your bar, you would have had more customers than anybody else because there were all these people that wanted to go to a bar where they weren't going to be surrounded by smoke. Mm -hmm. But no bar would do that until after the law was passed. You know, Mm -hmm. to me it was kind of dumb, but I think you should have bars where, you know, people smoke and bars where people don't smoke. And if you want to work in a bar with where people smoke, you know, you should be a smoker. And if you will, you shouldn't be, you know, uh, I'm getting too idealistic because, you know, I think everybody should just be able to mm-hmm. to walk in and get the job that they want, which is not mm-hmm. the reality right now. But if you want to work, right. if you want to be a non-smoker, you should work in a non-smoking bar. If you want to work in a smoking bar, you should be a smoker. Yeah, I think it's a public health issue. And, and one of the things I don't like about the conversation we're having about smoking right now in this country is uh, the stig- stigmatizing of people who do smoke. I, we've seen a huge increase in stigmatizing people who have an addiction. 
mm-hmm. that's exactly what it is. People have an addiction, and they should not be criminalized or stigmatized for that. The thing about smoking, I think that is in some way unique, is the secondhand smoke. And I think that as a society, we have the right to attempt to minimize the harms of that. And I think if you have, uh, for example, when I was in an airport in in Turkey recently, they have booths, um, camel um, sponsors smoking booths in the airport. I'm in favor of that. You go in the booth, you close the door, you have your cigarette. You don't have to run out out to the tarmac <laughs> where, the, where the plane is. You know, they set up a booth for people to uh, address their nicotine addiction. I'm all in favor of that. Well, I think that's reasonable. Uh, you know, it, it was weird when I when I came back from Japan, you know, I was in Japan from 1980 to 1986, which was when the anti-smoking crusade took place in the U.S. And, of course, everybody in Japan smoked when I was there the whole time. And, you know, I got back to the U.S. and it's it's like, you know, I I remember I'm smoking a cigarette. There's an ashtray, you know, standing right next to me. I'm at the university smoking. So I light up a cigarette and start smoking. And people come up to me, you can't smoke here! Uh, what do you mean I can't smoke here? There's an ashtray here. My father dies cigarettes. Everybody's screaming in my face. It's like I just got back from Japan. Has everyone in the United States lost their minds while I was gone? Yeah. Uh, and, well, I mean, there has been a public health campaign that has been waged for decades against the power and the profits of the, of, of the, the tobacco industry, which has been able to essentially addict millions and millions and kill millions and millions of people. And it's really interesting because because tobacco has always been legal in the United States, correct? Mm-hmm. And what we've seen solely through a public health campaign waged, on, uh, waged by numerous unsung heroes to convince people to quit smoking. We didn't launch a war on tobacco. We didn't make it illegal. We didn't send in the drug warriors to snatch away those cigarettes and lock people up for mandatory minimum sentences of 20 years. What we did was we embarked on a public health campaign that over decades has resulted in, I think they cut the rate of people who smoke in half. That's Mm -hmm. amazing, right? That's Mm -hmm. incredible. Mm -hmm. And we did it by talking honestly about nicotine and tobacco and the health consequences, by helping um, people quit for that minority that needed help. We know the majority uh, quit on their own, spontaneous remission, you might call it. They pick a date, uh, and then they do it. And I think it's instructive. And that's how we would, if we legalized and regulated all drugs, we would we would launch a public health campaign to teach people about drugs and how to use them responsibly, or not even at all, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still thinking. Uh, you're bringing back memories now of being in Japan. You know, it, Japan didn't have tobacco companies. It was a government monopoly. It was the Japanese tobacco, salt, and alcohol monopoly. 
Th- mm-hmm. Those three were all owned, all regulated by the government. Um, right before I left, they they started privatizing tobacco and alcohol. But you know, the whole time I was there, it was government monopoly. Um, and you would go to the to the tobacco stands, these little tobacco stands, and you know they'd have signs inside about how smoking cigarettes makes you live longer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, uh, you know, I, it was quite a different experience. I understand that uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping, also in China, used to advise everyone to smoke because it would make them live longer, and he loved his cigarettes. So um, it, it was quite a cultural difference. Right, and it's so problematic when whoever controls the industry has an incentive. In, in keeping people smoking, right? I mean, if the government is depending on people buying cigarettes, becoming addicted to cigarettes for tax revenue, there's a contradiction there than when you realize as a society that tobacco is killing people and, and causing enormous destruction of, of losing loved ones, the impact on the healthcare system in terms of the cost of smoking, of all the, the cancers and the other health problems, and yet the government, so in this country, the tobacco industry uh, in collusion with the government, they uh, allowed for some regulation and then they began to pay a lot of taxes uh, to the government uh, and then the government, state governments in particular, became dependent on the taxes that they got from the tobacco companies in order to keep state budgets solvent. But then they're trying to convince people not to smoke. But then if people stop smoking, buying cigarettes, paying all those taxes, the tobacco companies paying all those taxes, then how are the state budgets going to function? And it's a very to word for it bizarre uh, a situation where we know that this is harmful to human health, but in order to fund state budgets, people have to keep doing it. I mean, it's just crazy. It's crazy-making. Yeah, and in Japan, it was not even tax revenue. The, it was the Japanese. Uh, the Japanese government, they called it the Japanese Tobacco, Salt, and Alcohol Monopoly. The government was the only one that was allowed to sell. Tobacco, alcohol, and salt. So there were there were no private companies selling cigarettes. It was the government. Right. So it's the, the same thing in Spain. It was the same thing in Spain. And so when they tried to introduce the government, which controls the sale of tobacco, then the government tries to implement regulations around smoking in restaurants and bars. All hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened in Japan. I remember they were privatizing at the time that I left. And I do think that I think the tobacco got privatized. Um, so I'd be curious to see what's going on there now and see if people are sm- still smoking the way they were then, because everybody's smoking everywhere, you know. Right, definitely in many other parts of the world, China, in in particular, um, mm-hmm. high high rates of smoking, and and, and correspondingly high rates of of, of cancer and deaths from cancer. I mean, that, those two things always go together. We, we know that now. That's um, indisputable. Oh, yeah, and the warnings on the Japanese cigarette packs. For the sake of your health, be careful not to over-smoke. 
That's <laughs> what they translated as. Right, right. And we know that those don't work. Like warnings on cigarette packs don't, uh, they don't work. And the tobacco industry knows that. It was a very clever concession that they made to the government, at least in the United States, to put these warning labels on packages when they knew that they would not stop people from smoking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it helped them in terms of liability so that then people couldn't sue the tobacco companies because they said, hey, we had a warning label that you could get cancer and all these terrible things could happen. You chose to go ahead and smoke. So the the tobacco industry is one of the most clever, conniving uh, industries out there. I mean, they set the bar high. I mean, the only comparable uh, group of, of of dangerous capitalists, I think, of the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, and really, when you think about nic- nicotine, it's a pharmaceutical, it's a drug. And these corporations, I mean, the profits that they make, they will do anything to continue to make those profits, even if their customers die, which if you smoke, you're a customer who's, you know, you have a very high risk of dying from the ingestion of, of this product. And that's why the tobacco companies have to get people young. They have to replace the smokers every decade. And that's why people who begin who smoke, the majority of them begin when they're really young, when they're actually 8, 9, 10, and teenagers. That, that's when the majority of people begin to smoke and then smoke over a lifetime. So they, they addict people when they're very young to keep their customer base because they have to turn it over because many of these people are going to die. That's Sick. That is sick. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think it, my feeling is that today, at least, um, you know, big pharma is is much more problematic than big tobacco because big tobacco can't get away with very much anymore. They're under scrutiny for everything. They've been sued. You know, they can't get away with a heck of a lot. Uh, big pharma seems to me to be, you know, really out of control. It's interesting because even though the rates of smoking have gone down dramatically in the United States, uh, 50 million Americans still smoke. And it's, it's the, the tobacco companies make billions and billions. So even though, again, um, the rates have gone way down, there is a, a, a committed group uh, of, of smokers that the tobacco industry is making billions off of. Mm-hmm. This is still a very lucrative market for the tobacco industry, uh, despite all of these these regulations. It's um it's very profitable, and and because of the regulations, they had to search out new markets, and so places like China, Thailand. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's where they're Russia. that's where they're doing all their dirty right. work is abroad. Right. They can't get away with anything in the U.S. You can't go on TV and say, smoking cigarettes will make you sexy. You can't say, uh, lucky strike, so round, so firm, mm-hmm. so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. I love those old cigarette ads. They're just, that's mm-hmm. just pure sex right there. Um, right. But uh, you can't do that anymore instead. But you got Big farmer on there. Ask your doctor. You need an antidepressant. You don't, do you feel unhappy sometimes? Well, who the fuck doesn't? Oh, mm-hmm. ask your doctor for Prozac, for Paxil, for God. Uh, it used to be illegal to advertise those drugs on TV. Right, and that's why again the electronic cigarette is a revolutionary new nicotine delivery device that 
we have to get into the hands of people who are committed to, to smoking. I mean, if we can, can make this transition, we will see the rates of lung cancer go way down uh, and the other cancers, head and neck, which, which is largely associated with, with uh, smoking tobacco, we, we can drop those, those rates so far down. Uh, it, it, it will be a new world uh, for people that we can really dramatically drop the rates of cancer that, associate, that are associated with smoking if we can help to transition people to electronic c- cigarettes. I, I can't overstate the, the importance of this for people's health, world health. Well, I'm absolutely in favor of that. I know lots of people. Uh, I know that a lot of people that uh, got off the regular cigarettes and they got onto the electronic cigarettes, uh, or at least they went from you know smoking two packs of real cigarettes a day to smoking uh, two, one or two real cigarettes a day, and the rest of the electronic cigarettes. And if you look back at all those studies they did in the 60s, the the harms of cigarettes are directly dose dependent. The less the fewer you smoke, the less likely you are to get the cancer. So the more you can mm-hmm. cut down, the better you are. And the whole campaign now is to say there is no safe level of smoking. There is zero tolerance, and it's just stupid. Because if you cut your cigarette smoking in half, you've uh, you've done a great accomplishment. And you right. know, absolutely, any positive change. <laughs> absolutely, and you know, if you would do what I did, which is to recreationally have a cigar now and then that you don't inhale, they found that people who smoke one cigar per day or less, they didn't find them at any greater risk for cancer than the non-smokers mm-hmm. with all these big studies. And, you know, I say, you know, that's a little, it's a little dicey. One a, one a day is pretty easy mm-hmm. to get addicted and go up. So I'd say like one a week. And lately it's more like, well, I've only had one this year, as I said. <laughs> No. Right, and you're you you're running out. I mean, we're getting close to to um, in just a few more months, and we'll be into 2014. You got to get a few more in, Ken. Yeah, I got to get him in before it gets cold. I don't smoke indoors, so I only smoke outside. Especially cigars, really. Yeah, that would be stinky. That'd be polluting my own home. I'd have to come back and smell that. You got to smoke those outside, and yeah, mm-hmm. I, I favor smoking outside too. But you know. I also favor, you know, if somebody wants to have a, a bar where you can smoke and where the employees all smoke and the patrons all smoke, that that seems to me to be a reasonable thing to have, too. I don't care for the government to say, no, that's illegal. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've had a long, long show. And, uh, well... I I think maybe is there anything that you want to leave us with this evening besides electronic cigarettes? Any positive change. Life is full of risks and there are ways to uh, reduce uh, your risks, not just with drugs, but with many other things in life. And it isn't all or nothing. It isn't black and white. There's a lot in between. Yes, we use harm reduction devices every day. Think about seatbelts, you know. Think about, you know, you know. think about putting salt down on your icy steps. You don't have to go outdoors. You could abstain from leaving the house and just leave the ice on your steps, you know. Instead, we decide, yes. no, it's valuable to leave the house, so 
so we want to reduce the harm by putting down salt on the on the icy steps so nobody slips and kills themselves going in and out of the house. It's a simple harm reduction strategy. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Helen Redmond. Okay, thank you so much, Ken, for having me on. And everybody, we'll see you next week, and good night. <laughs>